Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is the Barbell Medicine Research Review Podcast for the month of November 2019. It's all about tendinopathy, baby. If you're interested in picking up the Barbell Medicine Research Review, click the link in the description below. It'll take you over to the barbellmedicine.com website. You can get 50% off your first month's subscription by using the code RESEARCH. Now, without spending any more time here, let's get into the interviews. I'm Austin Baraki. I'm a physician and coach for Barbell Medicine. All right, we're back with the November edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review Podcast. Very special podcast. We're here, second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. Austin, what's going on, man? Hey, we're back. Let's do this. Let's do this. So Austin, <laughs> this month you uh, wrote a paper whose title is, How Does Surgery Compare to Sham Surgery or Physiotherapy as a Treatment for Tendinopathy? A Systematic Review of Randomized Trials. This is a recent study. Um, do you want to give the listeners at home kind of a broad overview of what kind of, like, what is a systematic review? How many papers were in this thing? Like, what is the extent of the evidence that was reviewed in this paper and that you looked at? Sure. So a systematic review uh, it is a kind of a research methodology where the, the, the component of the term systematic refers to the authors basically set out with a predetermined, predefined like set of criteria, kind of search methods um, in order to screen the available evidence base for hits, for, for papers that um, are pertinent to the topic that they're attempting to investigate. And then as you may do with, uh, you know, individual patients that you're trying to include in a trial, there might be, you know, more specific inclusion or exclusion criteria from there in order to distill things down to, again, a set of uh, the most relevant papers uh, pertinent to a given topic that fit the initial kind of review criteria that were established at the beginning, at the outset. Um, and this doesn't necessarily, this is a bit of a different approach than uh, something like a meta-analysis. You can have systematic reviews and method meta-analyses, but it, they don't they don't necessarily refer, describe uh, describe the same thing. But in this in this particular paper, um, the authors ended up after kind of screening the literature and whittling things down, um, they ended up getting to about twelve studies uh, that included about a little over a thousand uh, adult patients with clinically diagnosed tendinopathies. Um, excuse me, this involved various uh, tendons. A lot of them had to do with shoulder tendinopathy. Some had to do with tendinopathy at the elbow, patellar or Achilles tendinopathy. And uh, what they really were wanting to look at was trials that compared uh, surgical treatment uh, for tendinopathy to either no treatment at all, uh, to sham surgery or placebo surgery, pretend surgery, or other non-surgical interventions, the quote, uh, quote unquote, you know, conservative management or other things altogether, whether that be physical therapy or a bunch of other wacky stuff like, you know, needling and laser therapy and a bunch of stuff like that. Very cool. Uh, so before we delve into the actual results, you know, just trying to give people an overview, like when we say tendinopathy, what are we even talking about? Like, what is the definition of tendinopathy, uh, and and then how how would you like differentiate that between other sources of of just joint pain? Yeah, yeah. So this is something that for a deep dive in the topic, I would direct people to our recent uh, podcast that our rehab guys did on tendinopathy. Tendinopathy, you'll hear us describe frequently as kind of a an umbrella term. It's a big kind of category describing uh, uh, conditions that result in 
tendon pain or dysfunction uh, or tendon tendon related pain dysfunction that tend to be kind of a load a load a use dependent load dependent uh, sensitization or or increase in pain that's thought to be in general uh, related to some sort of a, an imbalance between. Uh, the kind of the stimulus, the chronic loading and the healing regenerative uh, ad ad adaptive processes. So that's why you hear us talk about this in terms of a, a load based problem. We also talk about the, the management or our preferred recommended management of it is involves managing training loads. It's a load based solution to a load based problem, basically. But of course, again, it's a big umbrella term. So, uh, you know, apathy being like describing a pathology or, or, or an abnormality. There's all kinds of things that can technically fall under this umbrella, but the way that, you know, what the things that most people in lay public tend to call like tendonitis, which is its whole se separate rabbit hole, but that's what uh, that's included in this category. What most people think of as tendon related pain, dysfunction uh, uh, in the course of exercise or physical activity. Yep. Yeah. I, I actually don't love the definition of tendinopathy that's given in like stat pearls or, or a lot of other, uh, academic resources because it, you know, the way it's described is like this, yes, it's an umbrella term for tendon der derived or tendon related yes. or tendon located pain. Yeah. It's yeah. like, well, how are you like, if I have pain at the base of my patella, you know, that you're thinking it's your patellar ligament or, you know, the distal insertion for the quadriceps basically on the tibia, it goes through the patellar ligament. Uh, don't I just have knee pain, you know, like don't I, <laughs> and, and, and being able to pinpoint it, I guess you could, you could make an argument is somewhat is criteria, you know, for, uh, uh, thinking that it's related to your patellar ligament or, or, uh, quadriceps tendon or something. But yeah, it's, it's problematic when you think about the source of the pain is this yeah. tendon. Yeah. Uh, it brings up my, my one of my most hated terms in all of musculoskeletal medicine because I've worked with a lot of uh, orthopedists and sports medicine people and things like that, and I they just consistently they like to talk about the the pain generator. They want to mm. identify the pain generator, and so talking about it as tendon pain or pain in the tendon is not really any different than talking about pain being like in your disc or 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 in your facet joints or something like that, which are all problematic kind of narratives to set up. Um, and this is a bit of an aside, but I mean that that type of thinking of identifying the pain generator, quote unquote, is what has led to procedures being done uh, in musculoskeletal medicine. For example, the idea of like a diagnostic injection. So sometimes they'll do this where somebody will have back pain and somebody will think that it's maybe a, a discogenic pain or it's a due to the facet joint or something. So they'll try to inject some like anesthetic into the facet joint. And if the patient says they feel better, they're like, oh, there's the pain generator. So then they go and they, you know, do a radiofrequency ablation or something like that in the area and say, if we just burn the nerves in the pain generator, there'll be no more pain. Um, and that procedure, that sort of a procedure, for example, has been shown to not be particularly effective, uh, particularly compared when compared to sham, because there's this enormous placebo response from going in and injecting an area and telling a patient that we're doing this to try to find the source, the pain generator, because pain is not local, you know, located or originating from any one structure. It's this really complicated kind of emergent process that we've talked about before. So yes, I agree with some problematic terminology there, but that's kind of, you know, when people talk about tendinopathy, it's usually something that is a use dependent in a, a in an anatomic location of a tendon that they can point to and say, this is kind of the area that's sensitive when I do this activity. Yep. And I think the last thing before we dive into kind of what, what was found and, and what to take away from this is that, you know, we're going to talk about placebo the, and say that word a lot. Um, people 
kind of think that our our position on the placebo effect is that it's meaningless, it's trivial, maybe even negative in a way like, oh, it's just placebo effect, when that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, there is an enormous uh, potential for uh, using different education strategies, using different words, building different um, sort of uh, narratives, and, and using different uh, other strategies to kind of leverage the placebo effect, effectively making people feel better, function better, you know, have higher qualities of life um, via non 100% biological pathways. So I like the placebo effect. We like the placebo effect. It's not a negative thing. The point is when you're evaluating different interventions is to determine like, does this, you know, procedure in this, in this particular case, like surgery have a better outcome than a more conservative management that has uh, inherently less risks to performing than cutting somebody open and, and, you know, doing a procedure. But if you want to talk at all about how we view the placebo effect, I think that would help clear the air a little bit because people, I think people misstate our position. They're like, oh, these guys don't even, if it's just placebo, they, 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 they don't, they don't think it's, it's worthwhile. Right. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, a situation where, you know, we're fine with the placebo effect. However, the caveat would be that we would want it to be, uh, if, if we're going to promote it, we want it to be occurring in a context where either the risks or the costs are, you know, not particularly significant. Yes. And additionally, where the, the it is not, it, it is continu- it is kind of in line with the overall theme or goal uh, that we see in all of the pain literature where promoting uh, uh, individual self-efficacy is going to be like a, a, a very, a, an outcome of importance. In other words, you know, like for example, putting somebody, uh, letting somebody undergo surgery where somebody might say, I don't care if it makes me feel better by placebo or, for, or if the surgery actually works, I'm going to get surgery. Well, surgery is quite expensive in most situations. So there's some yep. cost there as well as being substantially more risky uh, compared to a lot of other interventions, even though, even though surgery, many surgeries, um, you know, these days are the absolute risk is low, but compared is comparatively, there's still some risk there of undergoing anesthesia and, and, and getting cut and risk for post-operative infections and all kinds of other problems that we can potentially avoid those and get just as good of outcomes with a lower risk, lower cost approach. And one, you know, if we're going to talk about other sorts, we talk about like the recovery modalities and stuff like that, or, or, um, routine, you know, manipulation treatments and stuff like that. Things that don't involve dependence on, on somebody else are things that we would generally want to promote. If people still are going to say, I don't care. I want to spend my money and need this person to quote unquote fix me. Then obviously that's an individual choice, but that's not the general idea that we want to be putting out there as a situation where getting placebo is desirable. Um, and, and particularly once you're educated as to the, the way the underlying issue happens, the, the way, you know, the way that pain works um, in, in some situations that may result in narratives that are given to you by some of these other people kind of not making sense anymore. And you may actually lose some of the placebo effect from that once you realize that, oh, I actually don't have, you know, a whole bunch of fascial adhesions throughout my body that need to be released. It's just that when I go and get this done, somebody's caring and listening and touching on me and stuff like that. And that's, that's, you know, that makes me feel better, but there might be some consequences in terms of how much of an effect you get out of it once you learn that. Yep. My, uh, my favorite intervention that is uh, low cost, low risk with a high placebo effect, uh, is hugs. Yeah. Just, there you go. You know, it's giving hugs. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know how to build that. I don't know what V code hugs are, but, right. uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> or, um, uh, or or fist fist bumps. I recently shared a shared a, a, an article on on Twitter that was looking at the rates of a, a bacterial colony like yes. contamination or transfer between handshakes and fist bumps. So uh, fist bumps are great. <laughs> I'm I'm having a little bit of PTSD right now, and this is a, an aside. And I promise, guys, we'll get back to this discussion. But okay, my urology rotation uh, during intern year, um, I went in this, and this is at, at uh, a very prestigious institution in Southern California. Uh, I went in to meet the attending before the day started and we were going to talk about, you know, obviously cases and what we're going to do. And uh, I go to shake his hand because that's, you know, standard practice. And he gives me a fist bump, right? And then he gives me a 10 minute kind of, you know, scoping overview of all the literature on giving fist fist bumps versus <laughs> handshakes. And so for the rest of the day, and this is an older gentleman, right? A very, much older gentleman. He, he doesn't shake his patient's hands. He just fist bumps them. And uh, so, yeah, that, I thought that was, that was funny. In addition yeah. to, he, he had a bow tie on as well. Cause for his, course, for him, yeah. bow ties or no ties. Yeah. Okay. We're not carrying fomites around guys. Yeah, all, right. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. Back to the study at hand. I feel like that's a rap should be a rap line for for an educational person. Uh, back to the subject at hand. When you're looking at the systematic review, and when you did this uh, review of the paper, what can you say in general about the role for surgery in tendinopathy? When does surgery outperform placebo, or, or sorry, not placebo, uh, uh, conservative management? Yeah. So this is uh, kind of a big topic because obviously there are a lot of surgeries. Uh, surgeries are frequently performed for this situation, um, although not with not without some reservation. So, if you talk to most orthopedists on a lot of this stuff, they'll probably say that surgery has a role for the treatment of tendinopathy for patients who have quote failed conservative therapy, meaning that they've gone through some of these non uh, non surgical interventions, whatever they may be, and they have not seen improvement. And at that point, then they will offer the, they may, they may offer the patient, uh, surgery. That's at least some of the common kind of rationalization or, or justifications for pursuing these kinds of, uh, treatments. Um, when we actually look at some of these, uh, these procedures and their outcomes, we find that if you compare surgery to no intervention at all, then in a lot of situations, you'll see data suggesting that surgery has benefit for those individuals, um, which should not be particularly surprising if you consider something like the placebo type uh, effects that can result from an intervention that is perceived to be as, you know, invasive, dramatic, costly, expense, you know, uh, uh, potent as surgery is, people have a big perception that surgery is going to fix them. Uh, if you compare doing something like that to doing nothing at all, so doing something to doing nothing as perceived by the patient, then, <clears throat> then it shouldn't be too surprising that you see better outcomes there. What's interesting is if you then take the next step and you compare real surgery to pretend surgery where the surgeon might, you know, uh, in this setting of this randomized control trial, they'll prep you, they'll put you under anesthesia, whatever. And then the surgeon opens an envelope that tells them to either do the surgery or to pretend to do the surgery. Um, we see pretty similar outcomes between those, between both groups. Um, and, and this is the same thing. We've talked about this a ton in other, in other kind of musculoskeletal, uh, uh, surgery context with meniscal stuff and subacromial decompression stuff. And hopefully soon some, some spinal surgery, uh, uh, trials that are ongoing. 
which that sort of a study design, which is the only type of study design that adequately controls for the placebo effects of, of surgery, um, actually demonstrates that the procedure itself doesn't isn't effective. It does not actually mediate the effects that we observe when we compared surgery to no intervention at all. It wasn't the fact that they actually went in and do, did the tendon debridement or, or whatever procedure they did uh, on the tendon itself wasn't necessarily the mechanism of benefit because you can just pretend to do that, not do it, and get just as good of outcomes. Um, there are also some other, there's mixed data, uh, unsurprisingly, when you compare surgery to things like physical therapy, a lot of a lot of papers you'll see similar type outcomes, and that may be due to some similar kind of placebo type mechanisms at play from the surgical side, uh, compared with some improvements from physical therapy, as well as potentially some improvements in terms of natural history, i.e., things that just kind of tend to improve on their own with time. But one of the big, big, big issues that I have with a lot of these uh, types of studies, in particular, that I have with the reasoning of performing surgery when a patient has, quote, failed conservative management, so to speak, um, is that uh, uh, physical therapy is not one thing. It's not one intervention. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that can have- It's not standardized. It's, yeah, not... It's yeah, exactly. You can have a ton of different formulations, so to speak, of physical therapy in terms of the exercise selection, things like that, as well as doses in terms of intensity and, and, and volume and frequency and, and, and how it's actually delivered to the patient over time. So, I mean, you never hear a patient who, you know, has a, a medical condition that doesn't get, doesn't really get better over time. And they're like, uh, you know, I failed medicine. Um, medicine just didn't work for me. It's like, well, maybe that particular treatment approach, maybe that particular medication, maybe that particular physician's practice style, um, or their, their treatment approach is not one that worked for you, but that doesn't mean that like, you know, as a whole, you failed medicine, rather that person, that treatment approach, that specific intervention did not work for you, but there are a whole host of other interventions, formulations, doses that can be offered in order to try to generate a, you know, clinically significant therapeutic effect. And that's kind of my perspective on this. When people talk about failing conservative management, quote unquote, or failing physical therapy, I just say that that particular physical therapy intervention failed the patient rather than the other way around. And furthermore, when you go down this rabbit hole of reasoning towards surgery, I would argue that just because one treatment approach did not work well for you does not suddenly mean that another treatment approach that has been shown to be ineffective, i.e. surgery, suddenly does work just because you failed something else that was completely unrelated. Uh, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, let, let me ask the question, this is the elephant in the room, the, yeah. the elephant with a scalpel in the room. Yeah. So, you know, you're, it, isn't it likely that you're just saying all of this stuff and you, and you have this bias because you're not a surgeon and you don't have those sort of techniques available to you? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we've gotten these kind of arguments quite frequently in that I am not a surgeon and I don't have the clinical experience to comment on surgery and, and they have seen their patients get better after their surgical interventions. And this is the same kind of tired argument that we've been dealing with in multiple areas of medicine, probably for, for decades now. And, you know, as, as our friend Mike Ray likes to say that we're not fans of, of titles, um, rather we just care more about the, what the evidence base would show and can you justify what you're doing uh, from that standpoint. And for the longest time, there was no 
you know, adequately controlled evidence for a lot of this stuff. And what I mean by adequately controlled would be, you know, there's most of the trials would be surgery versus non-surgery. And if you consider, you know, the way the general public views these things, that of course they view surgery as a more potent intervention, as a bigger deal to undergo. And that's a surgeon telling you that they're there to fix you. Um, and that's a situation where some of the placebo effects are going to be amplified. And so comparing surgery to anything not surgery is not an adequately controlled study. Whereas suddenly when we started uh, doing sham controlled trials, now that's actually adequately controlled and we're finding all these orthopedic procedures that don't actually work. And so it's like, look, I don't actually care that you are seeing your patients come back to you in clinic telling you that they feel better after surgery. That means nothing to me in terms of explaining the effectiveness of the procedure that you did. Because now we're seeing these situations where you can pretend to do the surgery, put them under anesthesia, not actually do anything, and they would come back and tell you they felt just as good. So uh, that sort of a justification uh, is not, you know, the, the logic is quite poor there um, when, when they say that. And, uh, you know, making these arguments by, based on, oh, you're not a surgeon, so you can't comment on this is total BS, to be honest. I mean, um, I feel like we have sufficient biomedical training and ability to... Uh, look at the same evidence base and recognize that, hey, this procedure does not work um, and we should probably not be doing it. And, and you know, sure enough, some of the orthopedic world is coming around to some of this uh, uh, in, in terms of their clinical practice guidelines in some areas. And I think it's just going to be more more of those are going to be coming down down the line in the future. There you have it. Dr. Brocky going hard this month in the Barbell Medicine Research Review. What is the role of surgery in tendinopathy? Check that out on the barbellmedicine.com website. Again, you can get 50% off your first month by using the code research at checkout. So, uh, so we're back. I've been re-temporarily promoted to host of the podcast. So for this month's uh, research review article, it looks like, Jordan, uh, you went into the topic of uh, collagen protein supplementation um, for the treatment of symptomatic tendinopathy. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of why this was even an idea in the first place? Like, why would people think to study this? Yeah, so there's a couple different reasons why I picked to this paper, this topic, uh, uh, for this month's overview, uh, where we talk, everyone's talking about tendinopathy. So first, uh, collagen protein sales have gone through the roof. And, uh, if you want some evidence of that in 2018, the reported sales of collagen protein in the United States is about $47 million. Uh, and that was under a million dollars in 2013. So, Things have uh, <laughs> drastically uh, increased as far as the actual market for this protein. Now, I've, the reason why I think this has like come to the forefront as a potential strategy is sort of this homeopathic line of thinking, which is actually my title: the collagen protein homeopathic cure for <laughs> tendinopathy? Question mark. Um, the body contains. Uh, many different types of collagen, over 20 different types have been identified. The main types are types one, two, and three. Type one um, is the main one found in most tendons, a um, little bit of a type three in there as well. And uh, since tendons um, are made of, of collagen, I think uh, somewhere between 60 and 85% of tendons are collagen plus water and other sort of uh, uh, substances. The idea would be if you take supplemental collagen, 
And then you can, that will direct itself to the area that the body needs, which in the case of tendinopathy, which is again, this umbrella term for, um, you know, impaired healing, uh, of the tendon. It's a very, very broad overview. And, uh, I would redirect you to the, uh, barbell medicine pain and rehab podcast on tendinopathy for more, a further exploration of that. But I think the idea is that if tendon pain, this tendinopathy is caused from a impaired healing, um, then maybe if you just throw more collagen at it, because tendons are made of collagen, then maybe that would improve symptoms. And the, here, here's the other thing uh, that's I think really contributing to the sale, both the sales of collagen uh, protein in, in the United States, especially, and then also the research coming out on this is momentum. There have been papers dating back as far into the 70s about, uh, at that point, it was gelatin supplementation, and then it became collagen supplementation, where there's, it looks to be some potentially positive benefit on tendinopathy or uh, joint-related pain in osteoarthritis, for example. And so, it's just one of these things that's not going away. Uh, and so, I think this momentum has been building and building and building. And uh, now, there's actually a substantial amount of studies all, uh, out there on this thing. Although, I will say, the overall quality of the studies is low, meaning that many of the studies, most of the studies, for example, are not randomized controlled trials meaning that you're just giving a supplement to people and seeing how they do, but you're not comparing them to a control taking a placebo, for example. Um, or alternatively, there are a lot of different foods that contain collagen, right? Uh, particularly animal uh, like meats, uh, particularly those that have connective tissue in them, also egg whites, spirulina. There's a bunch of different uh, foods that are rich in collagen. Um, and none of the studies are comparing food-based collagen, like foods that are rich in collagen, to supplemental collagen to see how those do with respect to either joint pain or tendinopathy. And then finally, finally, collagen protein is obviously, as the name would just would uh, in, uh, inform you, it's a protein. None of the studies are comparing collagen protein to another source of protein on tendon-related uh, tendinopathy or um, uh, or joint pain in the case of like osteoarthritis, for example. So the overall quality uh, is pretty low just from a methodology standpoint. And then the final part of this is that the study sizes like are really, really small. Yeah. Uh, for this one is 20 people. Yeah. It's not a adequately powered to tell you anything about this. But in any event, I thought because of the popularity of collagen supplementation in current times, it's like I think I think the only thing that's maybe more popular than that right now, um, as far that's a new supplement, would be like CBD, which maybe we'll yeah. discuss in the future. <laughs> yeah, I, I found that last part. I mean, where you talk about most of them not doing collagen protein versus another protein to be really a compelling kind of argument. In in the same line that when I'm talking about like, you know, the surgery trials needing an actual you know adequate control being like sham surgery comparing collagen to another form of protein would be the way to do the, a truly adequate kind of uh, control from that standpoint, it seems to me. When you talk about the uh, the power, how, how well the studies are powered in terms of their sample size, of course, that determination depends on the so the anticipated you know size of the effect that you may get. And so if you expect these supplements to have an enormous improvement on on pain and function, then you don't necessarily need a particularly large, uh, particularly large uh, uh, study size. Um, but if you are expecting like, you know, 
quite small, but hopefully still maybe maybe just above the minimum clinically important difference, uh, you know, improvements in symptoms, then you may need a little bit of a bigger kind of study. And that's kind of what power analyses and stuff like that are for. Um, the only other thing I'd say here is, is you know, the, the way that collagen in tendons, you know, we think about it as kind of a similar kind of homeostasis with collagen protein synthesis and collagen protein breakdown, not unlike what we talk about in skeletal muscle, although the magnitude of these things, the amount of stimulus required to generate these things, the time course over which these things occur are all a little bit different. Um, and so if the thought process is, well, I'm having an issue with my collagen protein turnover, my collagen protein synthesis, taking collagen is going to stimulate that. Um, you know, it's kind of funny to me. I was just, I hadn't thought of this before, but it's like, you know, if you train really hard and you get some delayed onset muscle soreness, um, it would be the equivalent of people saying like, I need to treat my delayed onset muscle soreness, my muscle pain from training by ingesting a whole bunch of like actin and myosin protein or something like that, you know, that it's sure. going to actually go in and, and drive the, the specific myofibrillar, you know, protein synthesis in the level of the muscle to repair this, which most people would view as, you know, not the way things work in that, you know, you take these, these, the, the, the particular target proteins and you ingest them. That's not necessarily how they end up in your bloodstream and go do their target effects as I'm sure you're going to get to here in a bit. Well, right. That's, that's the thing with, I mean, so you could have the idea that, Hey, if I'm breaking down or in, you know, uh, uh, need and need to repair, remodel, recover my actin and myosin, which are the, the two main proteinaceous components of uh, skeletal muscle tissue, you could have the theory that, yeah, I need to eat, I need to consume supplemental Specific, actin and myosin. Specifically those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but what would happen then is this is just part of the n normal human digestive process is you would take in actin and myosin, which are proteins, and through a series of uh, digestive steps, they would be broken down into shorter peptides and individual amino acids, which would be absorbed through the brush border of the small intestine. And then they would enter the portal vein and then go around to various different organs and uh, and, and then finally the muscles uh, where they can be incorporated and used in uh, after uh, via muscle protein synthesis to, to the muscles. And, and that's really the same thing we see here. Um, so co collagen protein, when it's ingested, does not stay in the form of collagen it gets broken down into shorter collagen peptides or free amino acids, which then get absorbed through the portal vein, which then go through the liver and then enter into the systemic circulation. And then they travel to their, you know, whatever site they end up going to, which it doesn't get to decide, right? Yeah, it's not like yeah. a, it's not like a, I'm targeting the tendons. It yeah. just, it goes to wherever and then is used for whatever the body uh, needs. And it may be involved in muscle protein synthesis. It may be involved in visceral organ uh, tissue uh, protein synthesis. It may be involved in re remodeling blood vessels or tendons. Um, the big difference here is that collagen protein itself has a high amount of three amino acids. One is glycine, one is hydroxyproline, one is proline. Now, again, collagen-containing foods like uh, animal meat, particularly those with connective tissues, egg white, spirulina, all have high amounts of these amino acids. Um, conversely, a whey protein supplement, which has really good bioavailability, really good uh, uh, protein quality by all the metrics that we can uh, test this, do not really have high amounts of these three amino acids. And especially when you actually look at a protein supplement, if it's got a bunch of glycine in it, that just means it's been uh, spiked. Like they, they, because glycine's super cheap. So what they've done to bump up their protein count is add a bunch of amino acids from glycine because it's so, so cheap. Um, 
but it doesn't really help with muscle protein synthesis. So you could make the theoretical argument that collagen, taking collagen protein uh, might be advantageous um, for uh, getting you in a little bit of extra glycine, a little bit of extra hydroxyproline, a little bit of extra proline, which may uh, spur additional collagen formation. Uh, that being said, that is a very reductionist view of not only tendinopathy, but then also like human uh, uh, metabolism and, and, and tendon remodeling. So at, at this point, it uh, you know I'm not trying to let the cat out of the bag here. You should definitely read the whole paper because we go into this a little bit more. Um, when you're looking at does taking collagen protein tend to help with uh, uh, tendinopathy related pain? It's an overwhelming shrug, like shrug emoji. And it's just because the data on it right now is not very clear. So, for instance, in this particular paper, um, it looked like the placebo outperformed the collagen protein in the first three months of the study. <laughs> and it's weird that the study design was a double-blind placebo-controlled uh, cr crossover study, meaning that for the first three months, the individuals uh, who got one group of the individuals, 10 of them got the collagen protein, 10 of them got the placebo. And then for the second three-month period, the people who were previously getting the placebo got collagen protein, and the people who were previously getting the collagen protein got the placebo. So what I would have preferred to see is for six months that one group just got the placebo and one group just got the uh, the collagen, just to see if there was any large effects. Yeah, and, uh, and additionally, I think that it's important to point out that the placebo was maltodextrin, which is a carbohydrate. And yes, you know, like you protein. were saying before, like even if the tendons preferentially needed glycine and proline to do their thing, and let's say that they did preferentially suck it up out of the blood uh, during, you know, in the process of, you know, repairing uh, from a tendinopathy process or, or, a, or a training load, there's no real reason for us to believe that you would have to take supplemental collagen protein in particular in order to supply those versus any other, you know, reasonable, you know, complete protein source that are also going to, going to contain some glycine and, and proline in them. Would you agree with that? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we already know that like, uh, uh, various different states of injury repair. So this could be post-surgical, this could be post burn, this could be any other sort of, uh, state where there's a higher degree of protein, uh, turnover, uh, your protein needs go up. Um, you just need more raw amino acids to, you know, keep your keep a net, uh, 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 your your nitrogen balance, keep your your uh, tissues. Yeah, um, and that's flush. In, and that's independent of the source. As long as you know, ideally, it's a complete complement of them. Exactly. So, so, and then if once you have that sort of baseline thinking, then you're like, okay, well, were these guys getting a ton of protein? And you actually look at this study, and no, they were only getting an extra two and a half grams of collagen protein. And so you're like, I don't know, Feigenbaum, that doesn't really make any sense. Well, the two and a half grams they were getting were hydrolyzed peptides, meaning partially digested whole collagen proteins. So these were like effectively the end products of digestion that get absorbed in the in the small intestine of collagen protein. So that's like a super concentrated version. Um, so there, the amino acid uh, level in that was actually substantially higher than what you would expect from just two and a half grams of protein. Yeah. So the way I look at this overall is that I, I can't tell you that taking collagen protein is going to, you know, really move the needle forward compared to taking any other type of protein. Yeah. I, I just, that doesn't, right now, I can't tell you that. And then further, 
the the effects of like collagen protein over placebo, I, I can't really speak to that either because the the study doesn't necessarily show this uh, a significant benefit. Um, and people were able to identify, <laughs> you know, uh, the majority of folks were able to identify whether or not they were getting the placebo. They, so were, they, they were effectively <laughs> unblinded then, right? Yes, exactly. So, so the placebo effect uh, uh, was, you know, kind of obliterated because people were were able to determine uh, whether or not they were getting. Uh, mo- the majority of people were able to, to determine which what they were getting. Uh, and then the the most interesting thing after all of that being said is that the people who were getting the placebo, a non protein based supplement, actually seemed to do a little bit better or on the front end. Um, so I, I don't know. This again, overwhelming shrug. If you're if you're trying to figure out should I take collagen protein to help my tendinopathy, uh, I don't think that I can recommend that. Um, if the uh, the things that do have maybe a little bit more data on this, um, with all the same caveats that we just talked about, like we're not comparing collagen intake to total protein intake, you know, or it, like you know, the source, it probably doesn't matter. It you know people take this for their skin. They're like. I'm going to take collagen protein to reduce wrinkles and visible signs of aging. Uh, yeah, hey, look, there are papers out there suggesting that to be the case, but none of them are comparing a collagen protein supplement with foods that contain collagen or any other type of protein intake. So what you would like to see is a study where they're supplementing collagen versus another protein supplement and matching for total overall protein intake. And total, and probably total overall calorie intake. Just trying to get rid of anything that might, you know, uh, conflate, confound the data. Because um, over, o- overall, right now, I don't think that I can recommend um, that people should seek out a high quality collagen uh, supplement for for any of this stuff. Yeah, you could also. You, I mean, I would probably add a third arm to that trial. I'd do collagen versus another protein versus a non-protein thing. Um, and, and that would kind of potentially help you see whether this is a collagen specific effect, whether this is a protein specific effect, or if you see improvement across the board, it's just a natural history type of a thing that they're going to get better anyway. Yep. There is a, an interesting thing that I'll probably have to investigate further later on. Um, there was a thought that some of the, uh, collagen proteins intake, some of the, the amino acids that are, that make up collagen protein and also all of the other proteins might have an antioxidant, an anti-inflammatory aspect to it. Uh, although the, when this was investigated for like rheumatoid arthritis, no difference compared to a maltodextrin or sugar-based uh, yeah. placebo. Yeah. But uh, it is interesting to think about that in respect with respect to rheumatoid arthritis or other potentially inflammatory conditions. All right. That's my section on the Barbell Medicine Research Review. Let's see what the other uh, other guys have to say. My name is Derek Miles. I am a physical therapist at Stanford Children's Health. I also am part of the pain and rehabilitation team for Barbell Medicine. All right, so we're back with the November edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review podcast. Uh, we're here with Derek Miles. Derek, you wrote this month uh, about a paper entitled uh, Lower Extremity Muscle and Tendons Adapt at Different Rates and in Relation to Activity Level in Adolescence. So this is a huge topic. Uh, I want to start out with what sort of adaptations do we normally see in uh, muscles and tendons just as like a, a general overview so people kind of know what we're talking about uh, for the next uh, piece of this podcast 
So as, as an individual goes through development um, in puberty, what we tend to see is depending on the stress with which you're exposed to, which I know comes as a surprise, um, your muscles and tendons and bones all adapt at different rates. And there's some evidence that sport specific adaptation occurs where in swimmers, there are some studies showing that if that is the only sport in which you participate, you're more likely to have less dense bones. Whereas there's also some evidence that individuals participating in jumping sports have more hypertrophy of their muscle mass before the tendon cross-sectional area comes along with it. Right. So, so basically, the both the tendons and the muscles uh, tend to adapt to the uh, demands that are imposed upon them. Um, you know, this is uh, similar to the said principle, the specificity of adaptation to impose demands. And apparently this happens early on. Um, okay, so this paper that you reviewed this month, what uh, did they look at specifically to measure these adaptations? So they did a, a few different metrics. Some they used muscle uh, or muscle strength, and then they also used cross-sectional area of the tendon and pinnation angle of the vastus lateralis. Uh, so some of it is a little bit extrapolated because in adolescent studies, especially, you're rarely going to ever see a biopsy study just because of the ethics of getting biopsy approved for a tendon or muscle sample. But, <laughs> right, uh, right. Yeah. For, for, the, for the people at home, uh, when Derek's saying panation angle, that's effectively the angle of attack that the muscle has between its origin and insertion. Um, and that has to do with muscle morphology, uh, genetics, you know, and then also actual training can change the panation angle. And then when he says biopsy, it's exactly what you think about. You're taking a chunk of muscle, usually with a, a large bore needle. Um, <laughs> you jab that into somebody's muscle and it extracts a piece of muscle tissue and you look at it under a microscope. Um, so yeah, that would be hard to get past an IRB for, uh, for adolescent or youth uh, participants. Yeah, but they tend to be okay with us doing a, a strength test or doing ultrasound in order to determine things like pinnation angle or getting at least a good proxy of cross-sectional area from that. Um, and this is really what they did in this study to look at how each one of those developed across the lifespan. The interesting thing about this study in particular is it got dichotomized into individuals participating in sport versus sedentary individuals. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, there does seem to be some specificity according to the sport with which you participate in how the adaptation takes place. So we may be better off looking at it as sedentary individuals versus active individuals and really trying to draw some conclusions from this data set. So what you're, so what you're saying is that you would expect there to be changes in the active group that are not seen in a sedentary group. Yes. Okay. And, and out of that, I, I would expect a relatively large confidence interval out of the changes that we do see in the athletes, just from the heterogeneity of sports that they participated in. So from a, from a broad view of this particular study with the more in-depth and specific stuff being available in the research review from this month, um, what can you tell us about the, the rate of adaptation in uh, attendance compared to muscle in this, in this group? Well, in, in the active versus inactive group, there certainly is some heuristics that we can get out of this. And the biggest one being that being an active individual does have positive effects in the development of cross-sectional area, both your muscle and your tendon. The interesting part is where this really seems to start is younger than likely where we would expect. And um, the younger group out of this was aged around 11 to 12. And there, 
from that 11 to 12 to 14 to 15 is where some of the biggest gains came in both cross-sectional area, uh, the ability of the tendon to generate or accept force, and uh, just a lot of the heuristics that we would consider advantageous. And I think you can build a case for this, that this is reason that we need to get our adolescent athletes active earlier than waiting until high school age. And a lot of the gains, and this is across research papers, even beyond this one, seem to really have the biggest leaps and inflection points around middle school age instead of high school age. So when you say cross-sectional area, are you talking about just the tendon or are you talking about muscle mass too? Uh, they did both. And then they compared the ratio between the two. So, so even the younger group who, for all intents and purposes, uh, and based on averages, should be this should be well prior to uh, uh, going through puberty. This should be pre pubertal uh, individuals. They were able to increase their muscle cross sectional area. Yes, and the the biggest trend was between early uh, adolescence and late adolescence. But there still was a difference between athletes and non athletes. Yeah, so this is some, an interesting kind of uh, thing we could talk about for for a minute. Um, most of the time, people, you know, the claim is that well, prior to puberty, prior to this change in hormonal milieu, um, you're not going to see the uh, architectural and structural changes in muscle mass just because you don't have all this testosterone. You're not set up uh, for this uh, increased muscle protein synthesis response, really. Um, but that doesn't appear to be true, and I know Fagenbaum and uh, and 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 his his colleagues have shown this in a number of different studies, which ultimately informs their position stands that have been published for resistance training guidelines in pediatric populations. But if you could speculate for for a minute, what do you think is the mechanism by which these like improvements in muscle cross sectional area are are occurring? So I. As I worked through this paper, I almost ended up coming at it from a, a different approach at the end to where I think it may be more that the sedentary individuals are placed behind, whereas like we're we're looking at like normal adaptation or what we should consider, quote unquote, quote, normal in active individuals because humans were meant to be active, whereas those that aren't being active are, are more behind the eight ball. And you may see like a depression in normal response. And I also don't think that adaptation is a zero-sum game to where your hormones certainly facilitate cross-sectional area adaptation, but it's not like there's a magical thing happens that's your 12th birthday to where all of a sudden the hormone fairy comes in and, you know, we can actually make gains. It still is going to be contingent upon the stress to what you're exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. That actually kind of jibes with what we know about adult adaptation is as far as how it is in response to normal hormonal levels, meaning that when you when you look at, for instance, men and women um, who are both exposed to the same training intervention, you see the same relative amount of lean body mass gain and muscle cross-sectional area gained. Um, and that's, you know, with wildly different hormonal milieus. So, it, 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 and, and then when you go like within gender uh, uh, responses to, um, uh, resistance training, you don't see that people with a higher testosterone level within normal get more muscle cross-sectional area compared to those with lower testosterone levels, again, within normal. So it seems to be more, as uh, I would say, <laughs> nuanced than than just, oh, high testosterone levels, uh, more gains. And, and I think that's an interesting way that you, you, came across, you uh, decided to approach the problem. Uh, could you speak to like tendon adaptation? Is there like a an age-related sort of change here, meaning that you get to see a more robust changes in tendons as you are younger or as you're older, or is it uh, similar to the muscle mass? 
it seems to follow the same pattern as the muscle mass with, to your vernacular, a little more nuance to it, <laughs> to where in between early adolescence and late adolescence is when most of the gains happen. But the interesting part here is the authors actually spoke to tendon stiffness as well. And there certainly was some liberty taken with the author's hypothesis in that um, a more compliant tendon should help with absorbing force and jumping. And, and they make those statements. And I don't know the degree of certainty with which I would buy into the overall conclusions they draw. Um, just because if you look at the normal type of injuries, and I'm certainly guilty of this myself in the past, having said this, um, things like Seaver's disease or Oshkid slaughters where it's an apophysitis or essentially like in layman's terms, a, a pulling away a bone on bone um, that causes some inflammatory processes. The authors hypothesized that individuals or athletes with a stiffer tendon, which they saw as an adaptation to sport, could help or this could increase the probability of these diagnoses happening. But really, I, I don't know that we can say this off the data they present. We can just say that being an athlete tends to increase patellar tendon stiffness earlier than being a non-athlete. Yeah. Well, that and that uh, fits with kind of our existing knowledge base on these adaptive tendencies of these structures, like tendons and muscle themselves, like the actual architecture of the muscle. So, so think. Let's if we just restrict our the next discussion to just uh, uh, soft tissue adaptations, like tendons, ligaments, joint structure, etc. Um, can we get? Let's give some examples of what happens um, to uh, athletes in specific sports. So I'll start it off. So for example, in weightlifting, um, when you look at youth weightlifters, you see a hypertrophy of their ACLs, uh, from a very young age, meaning that their ACLs are thicker than the non-active non-weightlifting, um, individuals. Uh, what other sort of joint adaptations or, or soft tissue adaptations do we normally see in, uh, active, active youth compared to, uh, those who are inactive? Well, I think one especially applicable to barbell medicine is they look at female tennis players and showed that they had increased bone mineral density on their dominant arm compared to their non-dominant arm. Um, and then you look at things like there's a lot of data actually on volleyball athletes that shows that individuals who specialize in volleyball earlier on do have an increase in cross-sectional area of their muscle more so than their tendon. And the thought being there, this may be some of that predisposition to some injury later on, just because you likely have more force over less cross-sectional area through the tendon itself. Um, it's an adaptation that's been pretty well established, but the overall relationship to increased probability of injury is a little bit more shaky ground. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a lot of interesting data on, uh, on tennis players, in addition to the bone mineral density piece, there was uh, additional research cited in uh, Epstein's uh, sports gene, where they talk about the actual dominant arm t can grow longer the, <laughs> the, due to the actual demands of the sport. Um, and, and I think one of the most interesting things that you've turned me on to, which in hindsight, I, I feel embarrassed that I didn't know this or think about this in the first place, is that some of the changes that we see at the level of the joint or in other soft tissue structures, they may look pathological, uh, meaning that they're not quote unquote normal, right? Compared to like somebody who's inactive. But in reality, what we're seeing are these adaptive changes. And then the quote unquote normal joint is just an unused joint, an undeveloped joint, an unspecialized joint. Um, and that these, these adaptations are actually not only 
protective, but also completely, you know, benign changes, meaning that they don't associate with pain or dysfunction or whatever. They're just uh, uh, adapting the individual to their demands that they're placing upon their, their body. Yes. And, and, you know, it's, it's interesting where we typically hear this is with the glenohumeral head retroversion in throwers and it being advantageous and something you want to happen in order to have long-term success in a throwing overhead sport, but it's no different mechanism than what we would see in a camp type morphology developing in a hockey player. It, it still is completely related to the stress with which the athlete is exposed. But I still think the bigger take at home here is the point you just made to where inactivity seems to have a lot of downstream slowing down of development. And if we're not getting enough stress in order to elicit some changes, we may not be setting ourselves up for the greatest long-term success. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, having spent this past weekend with you guys, the first barbell medicine pain and rehab seminar, um, when you specifically did your youth presentation on the long-term athletic developmental model, uh, one, one thing that people may be hearing that we would probably want to make sure they don't misunderstand is that, yes, we want individuals to be active, particularly young individuals to start resistance training, start playing many different sports uh, to prepare themselves for their future. But this hyper-specialization early on may not set themselves may not set set themselves up for success because it's it's almost too much of this specialization too much of these special adaptations that are not layered upon a broad base of sort of physical development um if you had to give the listeners at home who may be parents or because i don't think that our, our demographic extends into the youth population just yet we're not cool enough mm -hmm. uh, what sort of uh like sort of resistance training guidelines would you would you put forth for them uh, the current guidelines would say the child should be going two times a week. According to BMR vernacular, I would say that the RPE scale of their training should be at least seven or eight. So it needs to be hard. But once again, we also know that when you first start learning, how you're going to rate RPE is also going to be contingent upon the technical aspect as much as can you move the weight. And there is going to be a learning curve to this as well. And Finding a coach who can teach the fundamentals of technique, start to dose a child appropriately, and then most importantly, take into account the fact that they are playing other sports. Uh, the biggest take-home message would be finding a strength coach who isn't as concerned about your child's 1RMs if they are playing another sport. If you're a soccer player, I'm happy you're squatting and we should see some increased weight on the bar over time. But if it, a coach is present who's constantly trying to get you a new squat PR, they may end up being a little detrimental to your long-term athletic performance on the soccer pitch, which is your higher priority out of it. Derek, thank you so much for telling us about your research review this week. We'll catch you next time in the December edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and also a pain and rehab remote coach through Barbell Medicine. Okay, we're back with Dr. Michael Ray. This is the November edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review podcast. This is all about tendinopathy, and Dr. Ray broke his own rules for this month's entry. Usually, the review is over a single article and uh, go in-depth on the methodology, the findings, etc., and then provide a little nuance to the readers. But you broke your own rules. You decided, you know what? I'm just going to cite all these papers, do a broad overview 
and, and how you frame it is a layered approach to tendinopathy rehab. So let's start this off with the layers. Like, how did you come up with this model? Like, what forced you to kind of kind of conjure up this idea? Because, you know, Dr. Baraki, uh, myself, and Mile, uh, Dr. Miles all discussed, like, what tendinopathy was and, you know, it, a very simple approach, you know, which has some uh, seductive qualities to tendinopathy is saying, hey, this is just impaired tendon healing. Let's just adjust the parameters to uh, encourage, to promote uh, tendon, tendon healing compared to the stresses that are placed upon it. Why, why complicate it with this layered approach? Yeah. Uh, well, I think the, when I thought about writing this up, I was like, how do I address tendinopathic issues, whether in clinic or remotely with people? And it, a lot of the research tends to still show, like, regardless of what we're dealing with, we want to first set expectations uh, about like what's currently ongoing and what's our time frame for this and do we expect this to improve from like what is a you know prognosis for this particular case and so i think that's a really good starting point especially as it relates to tendinopathy because uh, if, if we look at this from the just the simply the name we give it if i say tendinitis i immediately get people to think that this is an inflammatory based issue that needs to be treated to get rid of the inflammation but if I start with this is a tendinopathy and it's much more broad than just an inflammatory issue, then that kind of sets the expectation on maybe that's not the type of treatment that I need from like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or some other like uh, injection-based therapy or something. And so I think that's like the first initial expectation that can get set is how we talk about the issue. And then that tends to drive patients' expectations for treatment and prognosis. So you're suggesting like the base of the pyramid, the base of your this layered approach is to set expectations, almost like an education model where you're saying, hey, this is what we think. This is what we're going to call it. Here's exactly what that means uh, as far as, you know, the context. And then now we're going to build upon that understanding rather than just saying, here's what I think you have. Let's do this about it. Is that, would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just like, yep. you know, collaboratively discussing the issue and kind of how we currently think about it and then getting to what are our treatment options or how best should we approach this based on what research is showing us? Yeah. You know, it's actually kind of dovetails into this, this uh, discussion that I was having with uh, Baraki earlier in this podcast. Um, you know, the, the, na- the description of like what tendinopathy even is, is kind of problematic from, from building this narrative and, and then, you know, the setting, the expectations, uh, uh, sort of standpoint, you know, if we consider it this umbrella term that refers to all, you know, tendon related or tendon centric or tendon, you know, origin pain, um, that really kind of builds or has the potential to build this harmful narrative. Um, meaning that, you know, everything we do has to be centered around the tendon. We have to heal this tendon. And, and until the tendon is healed, we won't be symptom-free or pain-free or be able to get back to our our sport. Uh, this initial approach that you have about setting expectations seems to flip that on its ear and, and, and rather kind of describe more to the, to the patient and to the individual, um, hey, this is what we're calling it and here's what that means and, and here's how we're going to go about fixing that. So, that. so that way you don't get into those um, maybe harmful, harmful narratives. Is, is that something that you think has changed over your course of, you know, clinical practice? Like, have you, uh, kind of gotten into this new approach based on, you know, 
different outcomes you've had or, or different lines of uh, different way of thinking about it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and not even just like uh, we could take this outside of just talking about tendinopathies, like looking at, you know, low back pain and changing it to like multifactorial low back pain or what I was talking about the shoulder uh, this past weekend at our pain and rehab seminar, you know, talking about it from the stance of instead of saying subacromial impingement syndrome, changing it to you have general shoulder pain with activity or you have rotator cuff related pain syndrome. But the hope is to to provide a label which satisfies the need for a diagnosis for a lot of people, but doesn't specifically tie you down to this one quote unquote root problem to try and fix. Yeah. So after the expectations have been set, the idea is to modify loading. Uh, what ways would you could you potentially modify loading? Yeah, so that's a great question. I I wanted to give uh, pragmatic examples for this. So I actually walked people through two case studies uh, in this write up, and I won't go into my this, but you should go check it out. But there's a lot of ways to modify loading, um, and it's going to be specific to the athlete. So whether I have an endurance based athlete who's like a swimmer or I have a resistance training focused athlete who's a weightlifter or a powerlifter, that's going to be different. It's going to be the same general variables, but manipulated in different ways based on the meaning it is for that sport. So for uh, broadly speaking, you could be talking about just frequency, number of training sessions per week. You could talk about volume, which could be looked at as sets and reps of a training session. Intensity, which could be RPE if we're talking about internally related intensity or reps in reserve. Or you could be external intensity, which could be the load being lifted. And so you could look at ways to manipulate those. The, the last one would be time. But time is interesting. It could actually be classified as a volume thing or an intensity thing. Like a dur- Yeah, like duration exactly. effectively would be volume depending on the modality. Yeah. Um, an interesting question here, you know, we're talking about controlling load and you can use either an internal load metric like RPE or an external load metric like weight on the bar, for example. Uh, also, you could theoretically manipulate velocity as that would uh, be a, a, an external load kind of adjustment here. Um, people ask us all the time, hey, do you use a different RPE scale or uh, associate certain you know, uh, subjective pain ratings um, with RPE during the sort of injury rehab uh, period of time? Meaning that people people ask us, hey, do you tell your clients to not go above a certain, you know, pain score, or uh, do you ascribe pain ratings to different RPEs? Do you, do you ever do that uh, do you, in in your practice? No, um, and this got dis- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just put it out there. Uh, this got yeah. discussed on Twitter not too long ago because it, I can't recall the name of the paper, but I believe it was an adolescent patellar uh, patellar tendinopathy paper. That specifically was like, well, you should keep it less than three because whatever. The problem is, is we still want to try to use the subject objective measuring system of the pain rating scale, the numerical rating scale that still is trying to objectify a subjective experience that doesn't correlate well to levels of tissue damage. And so it tends to hinge us to the wrong metric in my book. So I don't I don't do that. I still give RPE and this this is even beyond just tendinopathies, but I give RPE. And my thought process is, is that symptoms are going to be self-limiting in a sense. If I program seven and you're getting a spike in symptoms and that seven is probably going to be very different from one day to the next. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find myself, I definitely have like tried to do this in the past, but I, I found that the actual RPE, as far as effort 
goes and and the objective you know are trying to be more objective with the pain rating um they tend to be so disparate that you would almost need like two separate scales um and and that didn't really jive well with uh getting people to actually use it practically so i no longer use that i haven't used it for a number of years um rather when i'm prescribing this stuff i tend to write uh kind of notes uh about here you know here's the level of pain that i'm willing to accept for you at this given stage of our rehab plan, which we kind of went over in the expectations, that's usually part of the conversation. Meaning that during this first phase or the initial, you know, week or two, uh, I think that most of your training should be symptom free, for example, or sometimes not. It just depends on the case, the context, the person, etc. But uh, I find that that tends to be more usable rather than saying you can't go above a three on a one to ten pain scale, or you can't go above a four on a one to ten pain scale, or RPE four for example, like none of that. It just, it, it wasn't accurate or precise enough. And if you have no accuracy and no precision, it's not, not, not a very good. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. So, and that's part of the, like, um, like you said, you would set those expectations. So for tendinopathies, I say out of the gate uh, and for a lot of stuff, I say this, but specifically for tendinopathies, I'm like, Hey, you know, symptoms are going to be a part of the process for a little bit, especially with this. What often happens is we start loading the area, it gets a warming up effect and then symptoms drop off. And so I tell people, like, I want these symptoms to be tolerable for you, which people are often like, what does that mean? Which my response is, I can't tell you outside of I don't want it to be debilitating. So if you do a training session and then uh, during or after the training session, usually my role is like up to 48 hours or so that you're having struggles with activities of daily living that you previously didn't have issue with or you're. Um, having other difficulties with things you didn't have difficulties with prior to that training session, then we've probably exceeded your tolerance level. I rarely even say like if it's a patellar tendinopathy case, I don't say we've exceeded your knees tolerance level. I say you as an, we've exceeded your tolerance level as an individual. Sure. Yep. Yep. And so again, setting the expectations really helps uh, frame this in a way where you're not necessarily walking on pins and needles or walking on eggshells about potentially nociboing somebody because effectively you've, you've done the groundwork. So that needs to be there. Uh, so after, you know, lay the groundwork, you've modified loading. Um, this next layer you have is resistance training when people are like well duh i'm a <laughs> i'm listening to the barbell medicine podcast i'm obviously into barbells um what do you specifically mean by resistance training where do, like what specifically does, uh, does that uh uh refer to in this context yeah so i put that in there so it would address not just obviously our primary audience much is much more likely to be familiar with resistance training and actively engaging it which is awesome but there's still a large amount of people out there especially uh, people who do like endurance training that aren't doing resistance training. So that would be what I tell people is the first initial buy-in I try to get with this is we have sufficient enough data at this point to say resistance training is beneficial when we're dealing with tendinopathic cases. But then that's also something where we should try to get long-term buy-in for the people who are engaging in re endurance activities not doing resistance training. And I think that would be a good like expectation to set. But if they're already doing resistance training or whether I'm initially having to introduce it with them, typically the bulk of the data says that we should be going through things like slow eccentrics or doing heavy slow resistance, which would be slowing down both the eccentric and concentric of the exercise. And then um, with that, just trying to progress it over time and, you know, typical load lifted is how I, I approach it. So I tend to start 
low and slow, meaning I have a, l- a little bit higher volume than say like our power lifters are used to. And then I drop internal and external intensity as much as I can and then add in the tempo and then build them up linearly over time. Uh, the difficult part of this is people really want uh, generalizable rules. And we really only have like maybe, I don't even know if I could say we have a handful of articles. I specifically think of one when it comes to patellar tendinopathy and heavy slow resistance that started out at 15s and then literally dropped them. I don't think there's anything magical about starting someone at 15. And in fact, I think it could be problematic if you're a power lifter who's coming out of top singles at nine, dealing with the tendinopathy, and I take you to 15 reps on your squat, that might not go over so well. So I think we just have to increase it some to regulate external intensity, and then we can regulate with RPE and then build from there. Sure. Yeah. It's like if you take that power lifter and you have them do, you know, they're doing singles at nine or, or other, you know, circa max uh, work, and then you have them start doing 15s, one, they are not prepared yeah. for that. <laughs> and they hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And they dislike you. So adherence is, is problematic. Um, but it's not to say that you could never use 15s in that case. You would just make sure that the um, internal load uh, rating, so using RPE, for example, you're going to start at a much lower RPE, you know, it might be 15 at five, 15 at six. And then that's your, you know, your first foray into this uh, or something like that. That's where people really struggle with this is they want like, I've got to start here. This is my starting point or this is wrong or this is right. And it's like, no, we need to be taking into account what have they previously been doing? What are their goals and how symptomatic are they? And then helping select because the big issue with this, this research is uh, there's a couple of camps that do the bulk of it. And one in particular really wants to drive the narrative for whatever reason that everyone needs to be doing isometrics. And although I'm perfectly cool with having people start on isometrics if they're extremely symptomatic, which is what I talk about in the article, it's not an absolute, it's not necessary. And nowhere does it like, do we have valid data to say you have to start here? Sure. Yeah, it's just one tool in the toolbox. I, I do like isometrics for people who are super sensitive and maybe uh, I use them more often when folks don't have access to additional equipment, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, so so the person who you'd prefer to have leg press or belt squat or do some tempo variation or paused variation of, of something like that or a, even a leg extension or hamstring. I mean, they're just, they don't have anything. They train in their garage, right? They've got a barbell, a rack, and a bench. And you're like, okay, well, we're limited here by, by the training options that you have. So maybe we do uh, a substantially more isometric work if we need to, if you're super sensitive to the descent on the squat, for example, in a, in a knee tendinopathy case. But if you don't have to use that, you, you don't have to move past that then. Exactly. <laughs> Me- meaning that I, I almost think that if you have a person who is not as sensitized, who doesn't need the the isometric work to kind of get the ball moving, to get clo- back closer to what they were doing before, it's you don't have to overcome that hurdle, uh, so to speak. Yeah, nailed it. And, you know, the whole time in my mind is like was when I'm dealing with people who like to train is loss of baseline fitness. So I'm like, if the longer I waste on things that I don't think are necessary, the farther we're moving away from where you were actually at, because we know, especially with tendinopathies, you adapt to the mechanical stimuli that is or isn't applied. Yeah. I actually did a block of training uh, at one point in my life where it was uh, probably about 50% isometrics. And this was not in the context of a pain and rehab like recovery thing. This was just uh, based on some uh, old timey articles that I'd come across and I was curious uh, so any of the Doc Ziggler's stuff that he was working with the weightlifters oh. and he put them on a bunch of di- Diana ball and had him do a bunch of isometric work. Yeah. I was like, well, 
I'm going to skip the Diana ball. But, uh, <laughs> I'm going to do this. Iso- <laughs> I'm going to do this isometric work and see what happens. I, I tell you what, I have not had that level of soreness in some of the muscles, uh, like particularly my traps. I remember when I was doing isometric rack pull work, like you just pull up against pins really hard. Oh, yeah. for, um, I, oh my gosh, that was just something else. And then um, it, it honestly, it didn't teach me anything really about the applicability of isometric work to the, the big three, because it was just one training cycle and, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't really make broad sweeping, uh, generalizations off that. But, uh, it did teach me something about trying to throw in a bunch of training that you're not really prepared sure. for. So I went previously from zero isometric work to a substantial amount of isometric work. And I was like, why are my traps so lit up all the time? Why are my elbows starting to get cranky from this isometric bench and press work? Uh, perhaps I should have programmed this a little more intelligently. And then I thought, well, I'll just finish this out right. and see what happens. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So after the, you've set the expectations, you've modified loading, people are resistance training. The next step up is sport. Um, and then the final stage is this return to sport. Yeah. So where, like, wh- how are you bridging that gap um, between, okay, we're, we're using resistance training as a part of our rehab methodology and you're ultimately trying to get to return to sport. What What's this middle layer in between? What's the meat of the sandwich? Yeah. So like sport is going to be more specific to people who engage in other activities outside of resistance training, um, like not just powerlifters, and really you could include weightlifters here because they have more of dynamic loads. Uh, so one of the things that we know tenants do is they have energy storage and that's meant to be uh, released during activities like plyometrics and jumping and running and cutting, or in the case of a weightlifter, someone who's going to a full clean or a full snatch or a split jerk. And so a lot of those movements, the initial expectation that gets set with those, those athletes is, we're going to deload away from them. There's not a ton of data to say that you have to do that. But my thought process is what is going to be more demanding of this symptomatic area? Well, higher speed movements, higher dynamic loading of the area. So let's take those out initially to knock down symptoms and help with regression and then build you back up. So the sport layer is specifically to start reintroducing what was likely prior symptomatic uh, issues for people. So running and jumping and dynamic loads. And then return to sport would be where the person is now ready to, for basically discharge, so to speak, or they're ready to get back to activity. In my mind, if I'm talking like a field-based sport athlete or a team-based sport athlete, we've got them back to practicing. But I set the expectation at RTS that, hey, you're really ready to play, but you're not ready for competition. That's a very different stimulus. So if I discharge you on a Friday, that doesn't mean you go play in Saturday's game. Right. Yeah. So effectively, you're bridging the gap between the more generalized use of resistance training elements to get somebody, uh, you know, over the hump and back, uh, well, and and increase their fitness back towards um, uh, engaging in play. Um, and then when you're you're entering the sports phase, it becomes gradually more and more specific till they're ready to kind of take the reins off and get back to practice and ultimately competition later later yeah. on. Um, I think the important part that you mentioned at the end, you're ready to get back to practice. Um, and then for a barbell sport athlete, you're ready to get back to regular exactly. training. Um, what, 
I mean, the way I think about this is that there should be a period of time where you're sort of reclaiming, redeveloping the fitness and 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 conditioning elements uh, overall that you need to compete at your in your sport. Um, that's kind of the gap between. All right, we're returned to sport, and now you can compete. Uh, what sort of time frame? Are you usually looking uh, at, at for folks who have a, a tendinopathy? We don't have a solid grasp on this, which is probably not the answer listeners are looking for. I feel comfortable saying that an easy heroistic is about 12 weeks for seeing good regression in symptoms while having improvement back towards your baseline fitness level before symptom onset. But that would only be at the point which I'm like, we're probably returning to sport then. The tough part about this is we also have data that shows that people do have resurgence of symptoms later on. So I try to set the expectation that, hey, if this takes us, and I honestly tell people up front, it's like looking at a magic eight ball to be like, oh, you're going to be done with this next number of weeks. And I'm a bit gun shy of it because if that comes and goes and they're not back where they want to be, in essence, they're like, what the hell? Like, what's wrong with me? And that can send us not down, right. not, not a good road. But so general rule of thumb, try to set it around 12 weeks and then set the expectation that if this does flare up again, and that's not to nocebo them and set the expectation it will, but I say if it does, here's how we can handle that in the future where you might not need me. Excellent stuff. As always, Dr. Michael Ray, uh, do you want to plug for the umpteenth time <laughs> the the research review? Because again, we're doing these podcast episodes not only to um, you know, develop content that goes out to the masses, but also because we want people to be learning and educating themselves, empowering themselves, um, emboldening themselves against the BS of the there internet. You go. Uh, be a what is your, uh, that's right. Yeah. What is your plug uh, for the Barbell Medicine Research Review? Yeah. I mean, so each of us take an art, typically, as you said, I broke my rules this month. Uh, we usually take an article each month and just kind of do a thorough deep dive into the topic. And it's not just like, oh, we're just looking at this one article. What almost always happens for all of us is we look at this topic and or at the, the paper, and then we look more broadly at the overall topic that paper was trying to discuss. And so then we think, well, how does this paper factor into what the prior research uh, topic is showing us? And is it uh, pro or is it against? Like, how does this influence understanding of the topic. And then more importantly, for general population, coaches, personal trainers, and uh, healthcare clinicians, has it influenced what we're doing on a daily basis? And so I think, obviously, I'm biased. But if you subscribe to this, and you start reading through it, you really are going to get some pragmatic takeaways to apply to various areas of your life from health and fitness and resistance training, to pain and to rehab. Yep. I agree. It brings me back to this, this uh, old uh, medical phrase that uh, one of my attendings was very fond of. Um, and she always said, uh, if you've seen one case, you've seen one case. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what you would like to do is have seen a number of ca different cases of the same uh, uh, disease process. So that way you had a more thorough understanding of it. So our research review is not just one paper, it's that paper. And how does it fit into the broader um, uh, uh, you know, uh, base of knowledge that we're trying to impart upon you as well. And then what are the pra practical takeaways? Yep. So it is its own unique product. And if you're interested in staying up to date on the current research in strength conditioning and health, or you're looking to develop your fund of knowledge within the, these fields, this is for you. So you can go over to the barbellmedicine.com website, 
The link is in the description below. Use the code research for 50% off your first month and you'll get more uh, brain gains delivered to your inbox every month from the Barbell Medicine team. That's a wrap on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're over on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, helps us bring nuance to the fields of strength conditioning and health and wellness. We'll see you guys next time.